Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Sean? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Greetings, greetings. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where, dare I say it, Science Rules. And I remind you all, everybody, it's a call-in show. So if you want to be on the show, please go to askbillnye.com and type on in. We want to hear what's on your mind. We want to know what you want to know. I'm so old. I was alive when Richard Feynman delivered his lecture about there's plenty of room at the bottom. And by that, he meant making tiny things. This was at a time when people were building these enormous rockets. But he said, let's go the other way. If you made things really small, you could accomplish enormous things. And indeed, what we call nanotechnology is at last emerging. We're able to miniaturize electronics. We're making things that do more and more with less and less. And today is another, Corey, another exciting day. I am joined, of course, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, mm. Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Hello, Bill. Great to be here. Great day for a podcast. Beautiful weather for podcasting. And I don't know about you, but I'm especially excited about this episode because it is 100% focused on changing the world, improving the world, making a better place. And that is, I believe, your jam. That is my jam. And so today we are joined by Susan Hockfield. Welcome to Science Rules. I am delighted to be here, gentlemen. And she is a neuroscientist, author, and the president emerita. That is to say, the former president of MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her latest book is called The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. Simple enough. So today, that's what we're going to be talking about. The next technology revolution from living machines. If I understand this doctor, this is a convergence of biology and engineering. It sure is. How did you get here? How did you come to this pursuit? I came to this pursuit by moving to MIT. So I knew about biomedical engineering because when I was at Yale, we put together a very interesting department between the medical school and the faculty of arts and sciences, department of biomedical engineering. But when I got to MIT... This is at Yale? At Yale. These I are was, all frou-frou, fancy, uh, back eastern Ivy League things. They are. It's, you know, that's where I've spent my, most of my life. Anyway, so I moved to MIT and had to learn about MIT pretty darn fast, get up to speed. And so among the first people I met with was the dean of engineering, who reminded me, as though I needed reminding, 
that the School of Engineering is the largest school at MIT with almost 400 faculty. And then he said something that was really interesting. He said that a third of the faculty in the School of Engineering were using biology in their work. Wow. That's what I said. Wow. I said, wow. And then I said, oh, you mean biomedical engineering. What's the difference? Well, he said, it's biomedical engineering, but it's way beyond that. And for me, a door opened into a universe I didn't know existed, where engineers are picking up a parts list from biology, new parts, new materials, and inventing all kinds of things beyond biomedicine. And I wanted to share this amazing future with a wide audience because it's fascinating, it's fun, it's optimistic. Okay, okay, okay. So what's the thing? So biomedical, we're going to make, just I'm jamming here, we're going to make titanium hips. We can make titanium hips. Uh, Yeah, we can, um, you know, invent new ways to treat cancer, right? We can do... Sure, we can. Sure, Corey, you can do that. we can do that. I do that in my spare time. Yeah. So how we... We we can do imaging in different ways. There are all kinds of biomedical engineering. There are a lot of places where, um, not a lot, but a number, a growing number of places where medicine has picked up engineering tools with biology and doing new stuff, but it's way beyond that. So, for example... One of the reasons I'm excited about these technologies is that, uh, you know, we've got a few challenges on our resources. You mean we we, we globally? We globally, exactly. So uh, just over 7.5 billion people on the planet by the last count, maybe it's 7.7. Anyway, it's a lot. But by 2050, very wise people, and I take their estimates quite credibly, there'll be over 9.7 billion Almost 10 billion people. Almost, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> Almost 10 billion. Let's round no, up. I, no, but I yeah, just no, think I, about it, this all the time. Yeah. My grandparents were born. There were barely one and a half billion people. I was here in New York, New York. The town's so nice they named it twice when I was nine years old. <laughs> and there were the United Nations tote board, total board, just moved to three billion so in my li- my lifetime, it's more than doubled, substantially more than right. doubled. And we're feeding everybody. Malthus, no. is that the guy? Malthus. I want to talk about Robert Malthus. Oh, yes. Let's talk about him. I'm going to talk about Robert Malthus. Well, hold, well, hold that okay. thought. Yeah. So you're, you're pointing out. Well, we're feeding. We're not doing a perfect job of feeding everyone on the planet yet. We're doing better, but we're not. Yet. But the thing is, the future is only going to become more urgent, right. this, these needs. You know, and so we're not doing perfectly on food. How are we doing on water? That Cape Town disaster, how are we doing on water? Not so well. How are we doing on energy? Oh, my goodness. Not so well. So it's anticipated that the energy demands of this almost 10 billion people, I'm going to use that now, I like that, almost 10 billion, are going to be double what they are today because if everything goes well and... Trust me, we should hope everything will go well. Not only will there be more people, but the people are going to be wealthier. They're going to be healthier, and they're going to want an energy-intensive lifestyle. You know, some of them might want air conditioning. They might want to have cars, whether they drive them or they drive themselves. We have a very energy-intensive lifestyle. And so the energy demands are going to double. Food, we're going to have to feed uh, almost 10 billion people. It's anticipated that we're going to have to produce twice as much food as we produced today on less land because sea level rises and yeah actually and cities are expanding yeah and so uh everybody it's just before we go on i'd just like to point out farming is not natural 
It has not been natural for a very long time, if thousands you, of years. If you stop farming, it goes back to a desert or a, what else would it be? A prairie, something yeah. like that. Or a forest. A forest. So uh, we are, our impact, our effect on the environment is going to be huger and huger as huger we get more and more people. And then if you think about another dilemma we face is health care, right? How are we doing on that health care problem? How are we doing, Corey? It could be better. Uh, <laughs> it could be less expensive, don't you think? It could be less think? expensive. could be more all-encompassing. So it could be more efficient. Okay, so anyway, we, we agree. We got some challenge. <laughs> Can we say challenges? We agree we got some big problems. Right. We've got 99 problems. So how are you with living machines going to solve all these or address all well, these? Well, I think the solutions, some of the solutions, not all of them, are going to come out of this new toolbox we have. The biology parts list being picked up by engineers. Engineers love parts lists and turned into new kinds of technologies. In the book, I describe some of them. I mean, it could have chosen dozens of others. But do you want me to give you an example? Oh, no, no. We'll move on. Yes, please. For crying out loud. <laughs> so choose your, choose your poison. Let's, let's choose energy. Okay? okay. So let's start with that. So I say all the time, and this will be another time, three things we want for everybody in the world. Renewably produced energy, clean water, access to the internet for everybody on Earth. Oh, okay. I can no, deal with the first two. Yeah, well, it's just, yeah. So, um, okay. So, I, I, I say the energy, I, I state the energy puzzle in a different way. What we need to do is sustainably produce energy. Okay? Right. That means that net-net, you don't want to make the world worse <clears throat> by extracting the energy that we need. And um, as I said, by 2050, we're going to need twice as much. You know, fossil fuels are just in not sustainable for the reasons that we all both all know, right? But so everyone loves solar and wind, alternative energy technologies. Yeah, and solar and wind are great when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, but they're just not so great when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow uh, because of intermittency. So because of intermittency, the rate limiting technology for these alternative energies, frankly, isn't better windmills, and it's not better solar cells, it's better storage. Better batteries. Better batteries, exactly. You got it. And so um, how are we going to build better batteries? Now, I always have to say, I don't want to discourage anyone from driving an electric car. I don't drive an electric car yet. You heard her say yet, everyone. Yet, yet. Because all in, you got to calculate the cost, the energy cost of an electric vehicle. Mm. So part of that is the cost of the battery, and right now, battery manufacturing is not really sustainable. It takes an enormous amount of energy to build a battery. It's a high heat process, and there's a lot of toxic byproducts that come out of it, right? I mean, we've gotten better. Lithium, state-of-the-art lithium-ion batteries are much better than those crazy batteries that I put in my flashlight when I went to Girl Scout camp in fifth grade. Right? Uh, carbon and zinc. You're essentially burning zinc. Yeah. Right, or the or old lead-acid batteries exactly. that you, you have under your hood. Lead-acid batteries have their place. Everyone. Old. They're, we're still but using all that them. Aside, yes, exactly. Let me guess, doctor, <laughs> okay. your proposal position is that we somehow use living machines to build better batteries. Yeah. We let, we let, we will let nature's genius build better batteries. Okay, now let me so, ask you this. Yeah. What is the scale of this? Here's what I mean. When uh, I think of a living structure, I think of a coral reef. Mm-hmm. Okay, so these living things got in there, did their zoosanthelly, did their zoosanthelical thing, and they left coral shells, right? And so there's a structure. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? A little bit. Let's see. I brought, well, I brought a prop, but it, our, our listeners aren't going to be able to see. I brought uh, an abalone shell. 
Anybody who's listening to this will be close to the internet and can Google abalone, and I highly encourage you because exactly. it's beautiful. Or if you're, beautiful. If you're dre- for, dressed for snorkeling and you're on the west coast of North America, go just dive down. Or go walk the beach like my colleague Angela Belcher did when she was in graduate school at UC Santa Barbara. And she loved walking the beach. I like walking the beach. You know, Angie, what she liked about walking the beach was abalone shells because I think you could just pick them off, off the beach. And what fascinated her about them frankly, wasn't they were beautiful, but they are, but that abalone, a sea snail, builds these shells simply out of the components that it finds in the ocean, builds these beautiful shells that are really strong and very lightweight, and then when the abalone dies, the shell disintegrates into its component parts, providing the materials for the next abalone to build Mm -hmm. its shell, and she would walk along the beach just struggling with this idea that abalone build the technology they need without contaminating their world. Why can't we build the technologies we need without contaminating our yeah, world? Yeah, Corey. That's why we have an expert here, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, don't ask me. Not only do we have an expert. Dr. Hockfield. Dr. Hockfield. Not only do we have an expert, we have a caller. Is that true? We do have a caller. Let's hear what Michelle has to say. Hi. Michelle, where are you calling from? I'm calling from sunny Los Angeles. Oh, good. Hi, Michelle. Uh, take it. What is your question? So um, I'm really curious about nanotechnology um, and particularly about its application in the use of treatments for heart disease or cancer. And I guess I kind of imagine having little nanocomputers like in your bloodstream, like helping you out and healing you from the inside. So this is a medical application yeah. of your machine. Yeah. So I have a great example for you. So if we just think about cancer, there's a whole lot of other diseases we could talk about it, but just cancer, um, the best way to solve the cancer problem is to prevent it. So you want to get all those vaccinations that, you know, for those cancers that are caused by viruses, and you don't want to smoke, and you want to do something I don't always do, which is put on sunscreen when you're out in sun. So we know what many carcinogens are. It's estimated that 30% of cancers are preventable. That'd be a good. third. A, a third. third. That's, Pretty good. That's quite a few. I love this rounding up style. I'm, I'm going I'm <laughs> to adopt it. Even if we could prevent all those that are preventable, still cancer happens. That's two-thirds. Now, the second best approach for cancer is early diagnosis. Because cancer starts as a small group of aberrantly desi- dividing cells. And if you can catch it early, in many cases, you can get a cure. But our current detection techniques are much better than they were. Still not good enough because they detect cancer when they're big, when cancer, the tumors are bigger, when they've actually moved around, when, when they've a substantial number of cells. Yeah, have... hard to treat. So we spend, I don't know, you know, $100 billion, more than that, $150 billion in 2017 curing cancer, trying to cure cancer, treating cancer. I wouldn't say curing cancer when it's way too late. So we're basically trying to rescue something when it's, when people after it's, it's very hard, when it's very hard. So. Someone I talk about in the book, Sankita Bacha. She is a physician. She's a PhD MD. She's a biomedical engineer. And she has designed the coolest strategy using nanoparticles, by the way. And here's the deal. 
So she takes a nanoparticle. Okay, hey, yep. wait, 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 wait. what's a nanoparticle? Something very small. On a billionth of a meter. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an, an engineered tiny thing? Is that... It's an engineered tiny thing. Nanoparticles can be made out of all kinds of stuff in no, all different shapes. So is it, a, does, is it a mechanism or is it just a... No. Just, is it a special molecule? This is something? just a special molecule. Just and, a special and, molecule. Yeah. And there are a lot of different kinds of nanoparticles that are used for all kinds of things. But you've got to do something with them. And what Sangeeta does is she decorates the nanoparticle with little bits of a protein, right? Little molecule. She, so she makes these kind of fuzzballs of a nanoparticle with these uh, you know, proteins sticking out of them. Michelle, your dog is commenting. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. He's he's very interested in nanotechnology. Well, I, you I know, my dog is too. Yeah, my dog but, loves nanotechnology. Why, why do, why, Bill, why do dogs love nanotechnology so much? I've often wondered about that. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. yeah. They, they don't smell, so I'm not sure why dogs would love them. In any case, but one of the magnificent things about nature and the vast heterogeneity of biology is that your liver doesn't look like your skin, your eye doesn't look like your ear, because different genes produce different proteins that are characteristic mm. for the tissue. And guess what? Cancer produces its own proteins, and w one set of those are called enzymes, and enzymes are little molecular scissors. For a cancer to move through the organ where it begins or to move into another organ, it has to cut up all the stuff that's standing in the way and preventing the other cells from moving around. So cancers use very specific enzymes, and enzymes cut at very specific protein sites. And so guess what Sangeeta did? These proteins that are forming the fuzz over these nanoparticles are actually designed to have the cancer enzymatic site. So they are the target of these cancer molecular scissors. So if you don't have cancer, you get injected by the, with a nanoparticle, nothing happens. They go the way of everything that we don't need in our body. I don't need to go into that. No, we, we, under, we yeah, understand. Yeah, But if you do have cancer, the cancer enzymes will cut off the tips of these proteins that she's put on the nanoparticles. And she's designed these proteins so they're so small. How small are they? Five they're, nanometers. No, you're supposed to say they're so small. Oh, they're so small. They are so small, in fact, that the kidney will filter them into the urine. So first of all, they're so small they get into the bloodstream. They're so small that the kidney says, well, that's nothing. That's going into the urine. And very there's very little protein in the urine, almost none normally. And so then she says, once they're in the urine... We can detect it. So, do you uh -huh. have So, we inject with the nanoparticles. <laughs> they find the cancer. They snip off some cancer protein. Ends up in your urine. We detect it. You detect the protein in the urine. Yeah. I mean, have you, have you heard of uh, an inexpensive urine detection system that's highly accurate and very inexpensive? Uh, how about an over-the-counter pregnancy test? Corey? I don't know anything of what you're talking about. What? <laughs> <laughs> so the deal is that you can detect cancer by just peeing on a stick. That's great. But most importantly, uh -huh. the sensitivity of the, this technology is amazing. She can detect cancers now in mice right now when they are one-tenth the size of the tumors that are detected by current detection methodologies. A tenth. One-tenth. Yeah. That is a huge head start. So she started a company called Glimpse Bio. Wow. They will be in the clinic on, with trials in 2020. That's just next, next year. year. Yeah. And so this is just a way of transforming how we approach disease. If you can get it early, you can fix it. So, well, that, Corey, Corey, take yeah. it. Take it, Corey. While we have Michelle here, I just want to do a quick follow-up. So, Michelle, you asked specifically about 
heart disease and cancer. Are those diseases yeah. that run in your family? Is that something that you've had to deal with? I'm, I'm curious, why those, Why are those on your mind and, and what kind of a benefit are you looking for? Well, I do have, um, on both sides of my family, uh, my maternal and paternal have heart disease and stroke. Um, and in my husband's family, they do have cancer. So it is something I'm looking. I live a very healthy lifestyle and I exercise and I eat right. But it's always something in the back of my mind that I do have a higher risk for stroke or heart disease going as I get older. And for our kids, of course, they've got a double whammy of uh, cancer and heart disease. And I just kind of want to think about the future of their health and being able to have preventative or treatments. And I love technology. It's one of my fun things that I like to do and learn about. So I like the combination of having these little itty-bitty computers maybe fixing us and helping us as, as we go. Uh, I got you all, but I think we're not quite talking about the same thing. And I want some clarificationisms. Mm. So, uh, Michelle, you're talking about little machines that you would get injected with that would do some extraordinary thing. Oh, I know that we're not there yet. I just, I guess um, this is amazing that we, we even can have any kind of technology on the nano level that can go in your bloodstream to the deck cancers. That's amazing. Um, but I also want to know, like, in the future, do you think there'll be, will there be little computers that can do that work as well? Instead of just cutting off the yeah. tips of, of, of cancer uh, Protein, uh, right? proteins, they would actually, they would actually cut the tumor out. <laughs> Bill, right? have you been watching Fantastic be Voyage amazing? recently? <laughs> so, so, Glimpse Bio, not just diagnostics, also ways to direct nanoparticles to that cancer so you can find it and then remove it. Mm -hmm. But there, I mean, this whole world of nanoparticles in medicine is fantastic. So here's another way cool little living machine. So for people who have diabetes, maybe that's not your family's problem, but people with diabetes, the problem is how do you get insulin? I'm not going to talk about the price of insulin. That's a separate issue. How do you get insulin? So we inject insulin. But, you know, that injected insulin doesn't respond to your body's signals that it's time to, you know, increase the amount of insulin you produce. So how about putting cells that actually can respond to your body's signals, glucose level, right? But put them and can make insulin, but put them in a little capsule so they can just sit in your body and do what your pancreas would have done. Yeah. Another nano, you know, another nano machine. I mean, these machines don't have gears. They have nature's genius. So hang on, hang on, hang on. Aren't you, Michelle, are you even yeah. a little bit concerned that these machines in your blood could start start sawing things apart, could, could run through your brain and <laughs> clog it up? And so you're not, Michelle, you're not worried about that? No, I feel like in the, if, if the world is going to be, uh, change, you know, taken over by the computers, I'm on board. Yeah, cyber me up. All right. Thank All you right. so much. You have stimulated a fabulous yeah. uh, chain, a chain of uh, thought here. What do we call it? It's a train of thought, yes, yeah. as we link in the chains of scientific discovery. Thank you so much for your call, Michelle. And Michelle, read the book because Thank I'm you. hoping you'll be getting even more ideas about the, the biomedical future. Fantastic, yes. Stick around for more science rules after this. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. 
They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Science Rules is back. One idea that I'm taking from this is that this this idea of like, oh, it's a particle, oh, it's a machine, that it's there's there's not a real hard line between these two things. That when you're talking about these tiny engineered objects, uh, you know, whether you know the, the picture I have in my head of a thing with gears and pulleys is the wrong kind of metaphor. Well, you know what? Those gears and pulleys are gonna be little bits of biology. And so I don't mind the gears and pulleys, but just as uh, substitute for the gear, some little a cell, right? Or some little, you know biochemical process. So, yeah, you know, I would wag my cell phone around and say, oh, this is a a machine that's been built with physics. And then I'd wave the abalone shell around and say, and this is a technology that's been built with biology. Fascinating. So we want to use nature's genius. And we have another caller on the line who uh, you have inspired with more curiosity. Uh, We have have Helen here. Helen, where are you calling from? I am calling from Phoenix, Arizona. There you go. And uh, what is your question? So my question is um, kind of along the same vein, but really in regards to the body as a whole. Um, and what kind of stemmed the curiosity about this is, is learning more about organ donation and bodies being kept alive with machines um, while waiting for organs to be removed. Um, so my question is, how long could a human being actually live on machinery? So if a human being were conscious with an actual healthy brain function, would the body be able to stay alive solely on machines used to simulate organ function? Interesting question. So here's a funny thing. You know, um, now... Funny, a funny uh, thing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing funnier than not dying. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of my no, favorite no, no, jokes. No. But here's the funny thing, is that, you know, now if your heart is so diseased that it won't work anymore... You get on a list for a heart transplant. You know, when this whole technology began, you got, you got put on a mechanical heart, right? So uh, An artificial heart. An artificial heart. So what you're asking, actually, is something that's beginning to happen, that we're finding ways of, of supporting people until we can rebuild their biology, either by giving them a whole organ or, let's hope one day, being able to get their bodies to rebuild. I think that's in the pretty far distant future. But, you know, there are organisms out there that can regrow their arms and legs and tails, and there are people studying them to figure out what the biological basis is of that in hopes that someday we'll be able to figure out how to regrow our legs and arms. But I wouldn't say that's not in the realm of, you know, kind of, you know, what I, you know, I'm, I'm focusing in the book on technologies that are in the future, but they're not futurism and they're not science fiction. They are coming down the pike like Soon. All right. So, so hang on. Uh, I think we're talking about two different things. And uh, Helen, for you to consider uh, to uh, focus our discussion. Uh, a few moments ago, we we're talking about nano uh, particles, particles that we would inject into ourselves. But Helen, if I understand your question, you're imagining a bunch of machines or a system to keep somebody alive whose brain was working, but many other parts of them were not working. Is that correct? 
And why do you want to know this? Um, well, so a few years ago, my stepfather actually passed away, um, and he was an organ donor. So since then, I've just been kind of enlightened to a whole new world, learning more about organ donation and just this whole new load of information about medicine that just an everyday patient like myself doesn't really know about. Mm. <laughs> so um, realizing that so many people die every year, kind of what you're saying, doctor, waiting for organ transplants to kind of know or wonder if there was some actual sort of legitimate technology, not just something that was seen in a science fiction movie that could be available to prolong life for those that are on the waiting list while vital organs are failing in their bodies. That would just, that's kind of along the vein of where my question was. So let me just describe another set of technologies that are, you know, again, you know, on the cusp about with us, which are people who have had the unfortunate problem of having a stroke or an, some kind of brain injury that prevents them from actually moving their limbs or speaking. But we know now that the parts of the brain that direct those activities are still active. And if you can record the neuronal activity in those parts of the brain and somehow get it out of the brain into a robotic arm, for example, mm -hmm. or into a speech synthesizing machine, you can give these people a far higher quality of life. You know, many of them aren't going to die of their diseases, but they have a very hard time communicating and engaging with the world. It, this is an amazing set of technologies inspired by cochlear implants. Who would, who, you know, who would know that, who would have guessed that mm -hmm. you'd be able to make people who are deaf able to hear by uniting their brains with computers? So uh, are you hopeful about the future, Helen? Because Dr. Hockfield I mean, sure is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely am, especially just even knowing how medicine has evolved even in the course of, of my life, and I'm not that old, <laughs> um, just knowing where it's going in the future, it, it's really, yeah, it's very, very interesting and very, um, it, it gets me excited about the future of, of kind of seeing where medicine goes and what role technology plays in medicine also. Thank you very much for your call. You have led us down a fabulous road about medicine and nanotechnology and the future. So the question becomes, will this be available to everybody? Uh, will this will everybody be able to get this uh, kind of technologies, Susan, yeah. or is it going to be too expensive and only rich people will get take be able to take advantage of these things, and the rest of us will be? So let me give you let me give you a for example. Um, you two are about my age, so do you remember when car phones first came out? Yes, yes I remember. I, I do. Yes. What did they cost? Hundreds of dollars in a row. Uh, They'd be the thousands. modern equivalent yeah, of Yeah, they, they didn't bucks. exist in my world. They existed as something you would see in the rich movies. Rich people's or, world. Uh, a, yeah. Rich people's world. And guess what? Uh, they, everyone has a cell phone now. So, of course, these new technologies are going to be expensive when they first come out. But the hope is that all of them will run down the cost curve as we get better at producing them. There's a lot of, I think, appropriate concern about the cost of medical interventions today, particularly new drugs. Man, these are first out. These are miracles. And over time, we'll figure out how to make them faster and uh, produce them less expensively. So I'm pretty confident that uh, market forces will drive down the cost of all these things, and they will eventually benefit, let's hope, everyone. But that's part of the problem. It's part of the energy problem. It's part of the food problem. It's part of the healthcare problem is how are we sure that the technologies actually get distributed to all the people who need them? Well, I think what we need is uh, we need to hear from uh, caller Alicia and see what uh, what's on her mind. 
Alicia, where are you calling from, and what's your question? I am from Indianapolis, Indiana. And my question is, me and my daughter were watching a show on Netflix called... Minding Your Own Business. You're minding your own business, watching television. Of course. And um, there was an episode about a a gentleman, I believe in Europe, that had taken the spider silk gene from spiders and had implanted them into goats. And he was then extracting the milk from the goats and spinning it down to create spider silk. So my question is, is this kind of where the future of genetic modification is going? Are we going to find genes in other species and implant them so that we can mass produce um, products? Alicia, you have hit the nail on the head. Thank you so much for this question, Alicia. So, Susan, first of all, spider silk, everybody, has been pursued for decades, maybe centuries. It's apparently so crazy strong. And spiders are able to tune the thickness and uh, elasticity of their web, uh, their thread, amazingly. All right. So modifying the goat milk, uh, modifying the goat's gene, so its milk includes spider silk. That's one thing. But are you proposing, Susan, that you make spider silk, if I may, from scratch without having the goat intermediary? Well, that's a good question. I think uh, the goat root may be a lot easier than making it from scratch. But um, so, um, you know, this calls out something that is just you actually really have hit the nail right on the head because you're talking about nature's genius. So if we want something that's strong and supple and elastic and does all those cool things that spider silk does, why don't we just do it the way nature does rather than trying to invent our own? So I was at a, um, a company that's using a, a channel from a cell that passes water, is, only passes water into and out of a cell. So he's using the company. Like osmosis, but. Not, well, not osmosis because it's the channel that only passes water. So it doesn't go through a filter that does anything else, only water. So the way we get things into and out of our cells is through very specific channels. There's one channel for sodium, actually a bunch of different channels for sodium and something for potassium, and something for chloride, and there's a channel for water. It's a cute story that I'll, I'll come back to later if you want about finding the water channel, which no one, everyone thought water just passed through the membrane. Which, That's what I thought. Well, Correct me. Help me out. Yeah, so water <laughs> passes through membranes through a particular channel, and it's not just in humans. It's in plants. It's in, you know. So a channel, there's an opening in the membrane? It's built. It's like a barrel without a top or a bottom that sits in the membrane, and it has a certain set of properties that allow it to pass only its specific things. So, so there's a water channel. So you guys can't see this, but she's holding her hands in a water channel, topless, bottomless, barrel shape. Just there you go. Yeah. Lead on, Susan. Yes. So, um, so I went to a company that's building water filters out of the water channel. I mean, fantastic, out of this water channel protein. And the founder and CEO of this company said, you know, if we want to build a better water filter, we could bust our brains trying to build a structure that's specific for water. But he said, why would we do that? Why don't we just use nature's genius? And so similarly, this idea of using the spider silk genes and whatever organism is going to make it for us, just do it that way if we want spider silk. And maybe it's in goat milk. If that's the easiest way to, to make enough of it and purify it. Why not let the goats but she's, make it for us? But Alicia, you're asking about the ethics of this, right? Yes. Like, I mean, is genetically modifying an animal into something that nature technically wouldn't make 
ethical in terms of, I know, I mean, nature's laws. Yeah, where is the line to be crossed? So right. humans have bred livestock and everything on a farm, all the crops that we eat. We have bred them, tuned them to make food for us. Is it ethical to tune an animal to make a structural? Which makes something that, that say, goats wouldn't normally make. So exactly. we bred cows to make a lot more milk than cows used to make. And, and we've bred, uh, we've bred um, bamboo to make a lot more bamboo than bamboo would otherwise bamboo. Yeah, and we've bred corn to make a lot more corn per acre. So in 1930, the United States corn production was 30 bushels per acre. Today, it's 150 bushels per acre because we've bred corn through a variety of ways to be more productive. So that seems ethical. Why can't we do it to plants and not animals? Exactly. So... Uh, the other place where it crosses for you, and Alicia, this is for your think to thoughtfulness, is, I'm telling you, is bees, okay? So bees make honey, and that's what they do. Is it ethical to take the bee honey, or is that really, is not our place to take bee honey? You're taking, a, a, you're taking the, sort of the hard vegan position as a question. Um, as a question, uh, is th this is what bees do. They make honey. You're not directly harming the bees. In fact, beekeepers are diligent about not harming bees. Is that, <clears throat> would it be ethical to modify bees to make something other than honey? Would it be ethical to modify bees to make more honey? Like this is, these are, these yeah. are questions we're going to have to wrestle with. Alicia, do you have an opinion? It sounds like you have an opinion about goats. Do you, Alicia? Um, I'm not against genetic modifying in any way, but I guess my big thing, like what brought up the question is, considering bees or, you know, e even bees, they don't, wouldn't necessarily make spider silk and nature hasn't made a way for them to do it. So are we, in essence, playing God by making this animal create something that it doesn't? Well, that's what humans have done over thousands of years of human civilization is create plants that were not the natural plants and create animals that weren't the natural animals. I mean, I, I have a beautiful little, well, not so little because he's a year old, golden retriever who is a sweet animal and I just love the way he looks, but that's not a natural animal. That's an animal that we've bred to uh, meet our expectations or, you know, our, our preferences, shall we say. So it's a very interesting question, and um, you've taken it in a really interesting direction. Nicely done, Alicia. Thank you. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Stay tuned. Turn it up loud. Science Rules will be right back. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You're listening to Science Rules. You have this wonderful optimistic vision of how we can do more with less or do more with what we have right now. Um, 
But not everybody sort of buys into that kind of vision. I'd like to hear from another caller. I want to hear from Casey and hear what, what so Casey has a question I think might help kind of reframe the conversation. Casey, 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 where are you calling from and what is your question? Hey, everyone. I'm calling from uh, Freeport, Maine. Freeport, Maine. Fabulous. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead, please. Question, uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, to save the earth, would it be better if we found a new way of life? Um, not exactly going back to the way we lived hundreds of years ago, but maybe finding a middle ground between then and now. Um, maybe like cutting up uh, fast food, city waste, daily transportation with terrible gas consumption. Uh, if we did, what could that look like? You mean going back to a simpler day? Is that what you're saying? Well, maybe, or maybe just meeting somewhere in the middle. Like using using less than we do now. So, Casey, yeah, I'm but- with you entirely, but I think we ha- we can't go back to it because we weren't so good at it before. I think we have to go forward to yes, it. Yes, yes. And this is why I find using nature's genius to solve these problems to be so promising because nature is like has been really, really smart. And if we can figure out how to do all these things more sustainably, that's the recipe for success. And that's what's going to prevent our almost 10 billion people from being at one another's throats because there isn't enough water and there's not enough energy and there's not enough food. Yeah, Casey, I think I know what you're driving at, but I, it is my opinion, which as we all know is almost certainly correct, that I just think <laughs> you can't go back. Once people, for ex- in this example, in the developing world get hold of the stuff we have in the developed world, they're not going to want to go back. Nobody does. So I think to put it another way, Casey, instead of just doing less, which would be a way, if I understand your question, Casey, a way to go backwards a little bit is to do a little bit less, drive less inefficient cars or not drive at all, uh, wash your clothes less frequently using less. The actual future is to do more with less. Exactly. And that, I believe, Susan, is what you guys are driving at. That's what we're driving at. And so for food production, for example, we've got to have twice as much food as we currently have today. We're not going to use twice as much land. So we have to get twice as much food out of every acre of land. And we've got to figure out how to do that. So, Casey, do do you follow what I'm driving at? And do you agree or disagree? Oh, I completely agree. Um, I was just wondering, I guess, what our way of life would look like in the future. Um, uh, we do have to change. We all know that. It's just what would that look like? Well, Casey, I mean, do do you wish for a simpler life? Do you are you are you sort of nostalgic for that? Or are you wondering about things that would be taken oh, away? No, not at all. Um, we have some like such great technology these days, and everything. Like, there's more developing every day. Um, I certainly don't wish to be a farmer, you know, with my horse and buggy, goodness no. But, um, you know, I used to live in the Bay Area and there was just so much traffic and so much um, emissions. And that's just, it's a large city, but just a one small corner of the world. And um, That's why you moved to Maine? To get away from that? (laughs) Kind of, maybe, yeah. So, Um, uh, uh, you know, when I look at traffic in this example, it's so inefficient. Our system of transportation, huge roadways, one person in every vehicle, and the vehicles are so inefficient, constrained by the second law of thermodynamics and so on, that we can solve this problem. And I think there is not a, I strongly feel, Susan, Casey, Corey, there isn't one thing to do to address the future, to get ready for 10 billion people 
breathing and burning the atmosphere. It's not one thing. We've got to do all sorts of things. Everything all at once, as I like to say. That's a great title for a book, it by the way. It would be a great title. Once, I There's like that. 20 yeah. in a carton. They make great gifts. <laughs> so uh, It's available in paperback, you know. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, uh, Casey, be optimistic about the future. We can do this. But what you've done, Casey, which is so good, is you've identified these problems. You've given a, you've you've put them in perspective. So I really appreciate your call. And to take us back well, to the beginning. You. Thank you, Casey. Casey, uh, do you know uh, uh, Ma- uh, Malthus and the Malthusian uh, problem? I'm not aware of it. No. Okay. Because is... I think this is what you're tying into, Casey. So stay t- yeah. thank you for a call. And stay tuned for this next little moment. Take it, Susan. So the Reverend Robert Malthus in 1798 wrote this essay on population, and he made an observation, which is that he said, hmm, population, the population growth rate is faster than the growth rate in agricultural productivity. And he said, this is going to end in tears. And he went back and did a demographic analysis looking at birth and death records in Europe and in Britain. He said, oh, my goodness, this has happened before. You know, population grows faster than food, and it always ends the same way. War, famine, pestilence. Starvation. Starvation, death. And uh, so he wrote this paper to say, watch out, you know, the end is near. And, you know, he he was a really good demographer, so he actually understood the dynamics But what he didn't know was that already by 1798, new technologies were being deployed that were increasing the rate of food productivity in in England. So two of them, four-field crop rotation. Four-field crop rotation. So if you can use the same field from season to season and plant it with different things and continue to maintain its vitality, that gets you a lot more product. And this is what we all take for granted now. We take it for granted. You grow one crop, you grow... Uh, legumes to f- fix nitrogen, then exactly. you grow uh, Corn soy. to take it out, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And then the other technology I particularly love talking about, because when I was in fourth grade and we started studying those explorers who were sailing the oceans, they were looking for tea and coffee and gold and bananas and potatoes. But as they were sailing around, they kept running into these islands that were uninhabited except by birds, And, you know, the islands didn't have much real land under them, but they had a lot of, excuse me, bird poop, guano, which is nitrogen-rich, a great source of fertilizer. It was before there was a chemical process for generating nitrogen for fertilizer. For a harbor, exactly. So um, part of the trade that I didn't read about in my fourth grade social studies book was in guano. And so there was a lot of bird fertilizer coming to British farms and agricultural productivity soared. Now, of course, when that happens, population uh, keeps up. But, you know, I often think about it and say, well, huh, the Industrial Revolution in Britain needed more people, right? And they needed to get people off farms to be working in those factories. And uh, it all worked out quite beautifully. More food productivity, more people. The next, uh, the, the next innovation, the cycle of the innovation economy. So, you so know, Malthus was defeated. Well, but he just, but he, he uh, introduced a train of thought that has carried us forward even to this day, 300 even years later. Day. And I'd like to point out, you know, the Haber process where you take nitrogen out of the air and make it into fertilizer. If you could see Corey is, is uh, magically uh, in the form of, in the way a magician might. Pulling, summoning pulling nitrogen from the air summoning it. 
onto the desktop here. But <laughs> and we're just going to put it on my corn here. I'm growing So uh, the problem with the hopper process, first of all, uh, it's become so easy that we over-fertilize. <clears throat> that seems like a solvable problem. But it takes a lot of energy to yes. take nitrogen out of it. But for those of you who just can't stop reading James Bond novels, I remind you, Dr. <laughs> no himself in the book was getting rich with uh, bird guano. That was his, I didn't. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I no, didn't. I just well, didn't read enough James Bond. And clearly. also, he had Doctor No had contact lenses, which was extraordinary. Wow! So, uh, you guys, this is a remarkable thing where Robert Malthus said, "If and people, this comes up all the time, that because we have dealt with overpopulation, uh, or the what would seem to be a problem of overpopulation, we don't have to worry about climate change because technologies will just show up." Well, they don't just show up. We've got to invest. Can I just say my I've just this is not a convergence solution, but the most effective way of controlling population growth? Educating women. That's educating it. women. Educating women. Sorry. Standard, that's not a convergence. No, but. no, it's one of Uncle Bill's things all the time is raise the standard of living of girls and women. If exactly. you can somehow Harry Potter fashion magic wandically raise the standard of girls and women, everybody's life is better. And the human population will slowly, slowly, manageably, nat, in a sense, naturally decline. And so this could be the future. Now, Corey, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I'm, I'm hearing thunder. Well, you know, thunder only happens when it's lightning. <laughs> Yes. Do we sing that together? Uh, sure. it, I, it's not exactly the song, but I had to modify it slightly for our purposes. But yeah, if we had Stevie Nicks here, oh, we should get Stevie Nicks on the show. But if we had Stevie Nicks here, she would uh, she would definitely be setting so us down the right path. So it's time for the lightning it round. It is time everyone. for the That's lightning the... round, Doctor Susan. Yes. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. May, I'm probably not, but I pretend that I am. Okay. That so much of life is just pretending you're ready. What part of your life needs a living machine the most right now? Your life. My life. I need better ener energy. I need better batteries. Better batteries. There All you go. All right. Um, GMOs, genetically modified organisms and foods. Uh, yes or no? How do you feel about them? Yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I'm going to, uh, because part of the problem is there are people in very, very poor communities that need their crops. Cassava. A, a crop that many, many people depend on. There's a virus that's killing cassava. Millions of people are going to starve. There is a genetically motivated cassava that resists the virus. And it's been so hard to get that into the countries that need it because the people who are against GMOs or against genetically modified guava, uh, cassava, people will die. I am a fan of it. Used appropriately as all technology. Technology is agnostic. All right. Um, living machines, will they have to be patentable in order to make them commercial? Good question. The economics have to work. You know, we don't kind of, you know, just gift people with new technologies. They've got to work commercially. And so in the way we've designed that, that commercial success is through the patent protection. Okay. Uh, uh, remind us, uh, Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution refers to the progress of science and useful arts and what we would nowadays call intellectual property. Back to you. Corey, in the same vein, uh, living machines, will they need to be regulated? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Again, again, technology is agnostic. We, as communities, have to decide what we can allow and what we can't allow because it's just too dangerous. So we need all the regulation we want, rather, all the regulations we need, but no extra regulations. Exactly. But you don't get to drive on either side of the road. And so 
we'll have regulations for that. All right. Uh, is there a Moore's law in biology? Is thing is the progress in living machines and this kind of biological engineering is it speeding up? It is speeding up, and I always compete Moore's law against the price of sequencing the human genome. And guess what? The, the decline in the price of the human genome is winning out over Moore's law. So with the Human Genome Project, it took 10 years, $100 million to sequence the human genome. We can now do it for less than $4,000 in less than half a day. Boom. That's development. So we're going to beat that progress from the car phone to the cell phone. We are. All right. Should everybody be optimistic about the future? It sounds like uh, I think I know your answer, but should we all be optimistic? I think we should be, but we don't get it for free. We've got to invest the right way and inspire the youth of our country to want to be part of this future you know, the the positive future that we can invent. And not just our country here in the United States, but the entire world tuned in to podcasts like Science Rules. Yeah. And, so, and if there are colonies on Mars, oh, sorry, if there's settlements on Mars, if there's a, you know, a base on the moon, let's, let's bring them all in on this. Okay, to the future. Um, I'm going to give you past 2050. I'm going to give you a 50-year timeline. It's 2069. Will living machines be fully integrated into your life by 2069? Yes. There it is. Okay. That's it. All right. We're done. done. Yeah. yeah. Doctor, right, this has been home. fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Susan Hockfield. Her latest book, I remind you all, is called The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. I'm sure there are about two dozen in a carton. They're going to make great <laughs> gifts for all your friends. Check it out. I'm Bill Nye. I am Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the biotechno-engineering, the living machines part of our universe... Science Rules. Now, if you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It really does help us out. It helps other people learn about the show. It helps us improve the quality. And I will just say thank you in advance. Now, Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineer today is Andy Christens. Mixing and original theme music were by Casey Halford. A special thanks, of course, to Claire Rawlinson. And Chris Bannon is the CCO, the Chief Content Officer of Stitcher, where science Science rules. rules. Stitcher. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Prince donated this guitar. (gasps) I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.